Ricardo, buenos dias. Buenos dias, senor. Do you go by Ricardo here or Richard? Uh, whatever people call me. I've, I, I'm called Richard, I'm called Ricardo. They, they tend not to in Guatemala use Ricardo. That's more Mexican than some other Latin American countries. Here they try and pronounce my name like Richard. Richard. Something like that. Uh -huh. So that's what I go by what, you know, some people call me Richard. It's either Richard or Ritzard, more, more often than not. Although I tell people they can call me Ricardo if they're comfortable with that too. And what what is your full name on this land here? Well, uh, my full name on my passport is Richard John Morgan Jr., named after my father. But when I came to Guatemala, uh, immigration insisted when I applied for residency that I include my mother's maiden name. And I never knew my mother really. Uh, because she died when I was like five years old. Uh, so it was a little strange to do that. And it was strange for my whole family to find out that I was using that name, which became then Richard John Morgan Shibist. Shibist. Shibist, which is a Polish, it's an unusual Polish name. It's not a, usually they end with ski, you know, or wits. But Shibist, is, right. is, it's almost all, you know, it's almost all consonants. Well, yeah, I, I noticed it was an, an ordinary name when I first saw your name in print. And um, that's honestly how I discovered you. I was um, at a, another place around the lake. Just for those of you listening, we are currently in Panajachel, which is a, uh, a town on Lago de Atitlan in Guatemala. And so I was in Cerro de Oro, Hill of Gold, and in a house, and I found this book that you wrote or edited. No, you wrote it. Um, and just picked it up and started reading it and then couldn't put it down and read the whole book. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, decided, well, let me go to Pana and see if I can connect with This was with my you. natural healing book. The, the natural healing book, yeah. And so, yeah, this podcast, this this conversation that we're having is just for this podcast, um, it's just a place to record what I think are going to be interesting conversations that people can tune into, listen to, and and hopefully find valuable. Okay, sure. I'm happy to happy to respond to whatever you have in mind. Okay. So there's always a few ways I go about this. Sometimes I like to get into your your autobiography, your life, and what's led you here. And I think. I think I will begin there. So, yeah, I'm curious as to what what led you to arrive here in Guatemala. Okay, well, you probably already know from reading it that uh, this uh, came on the heels of retirement from uh, 24 years in the military, and people always ask me what I did in the military. And I, I, I somewhat smirkingly say I, I managed violence because I was in the infantry. And uh, although I was in the infantry, I spent a lot of time in universities and in schools of different tour types. But still, uh, I was in the infantry. I had a couple of tours in Vietnam. And I was really burned out at age 45 when I retired. And so uh, I uh, needed a place to rec recapture myself or to redefine myself in terms of uh, who I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. At, at 45, it's a little early to die. Sure. Now, uh, I picked this place. What I did was, uh, 
when I left the army, I had the GI Bill uh, from Vietnam. And, uh, and in Vietnam, I had a near-death experience, uh, which uh, was driving me toward looking toward certain things. And so I, I concluded uh, when I left the army that I was probably going to want to live in Latin America in a, in, a, in, a, in a nice place, a meditative place, a quiet place, a peaceful place, when it wasn't materialistic, when it was backwater, you know. And so... Uh, how, did, how did you arrive at that conclusion that Latin America would be the, the place for you? Well, because I'd been in Latin America when I was in the military. Okay. And so I knew a little bit about, about Latin America. Sure. And uh, I had always, uh, when, when I was getting ready to retire from the military, I had seen a lot of people retire early, as most people do, because it's usually 20, 25 years. And they didn't know where they were going to go and what they were going to do. So really, for the last five years while I was in the military, I was thinking about how I might want to transition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I had spent some time as, as far south as Colombia. And uh, I, liked, uh, I liked Latin American culture. I liked indigenous culture even more. And uh, I, had a, I had a goal of learning another language. I didn't really speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. I had some of it in college, but you know, it, it, I just couldn't speak it. Mm. And so uh, I thought that uh, living in Latin America, I could, I could learn how to get, speak Spanish really well, get into another culture, at least one other culture. And uh, so it was a matter of deciding where. Plus, they don't, they don't pay that much to retirees from the military. Uh, most people who retire from the military and stay in the United States end up getting a second job or another job. Sure. And I wanted to be my own boss. I had been taking orders for 24 years. And I, I wanted to stop taking orders and I wanted to be able to do what I wanted to do. So I, I, knew, I knew living here would be cheaper. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that it would be, I would be able to develop my own, my own goals. Okay. So was Guatemala the choice because of your interest in indigenous cultures? Well, uh, it sort of evolved because at first I was, when I left, when I left the military, I went back uh, to school, to University of Arizona. And I went back, I decided to go into a Latin American studies program. And so I did that. It was a graduate program. And while there, I initially was thinking of the possibility of just going to Mexico. Uh, and there were a lot of indigenous people in Mexico, too. There's, uh, uh, plenty, there's, there's plenty of that. But I found that Mexico, uh, government-wise, was not as open to foreigners coming in and, and basically pursuing their own interests. Mm. Uh, it was a lot more bureaucratic. At that time, it was a lot more bureaucratic, a lot more uh, tough to, to do what you wanted to do. Actually, Guatemala has come more like that with time, but at 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. So uh, I, was, I, I started stepping it out. The next country south of Mexico is Guatemala. Uh, while I was in, the, in my master's program uh, in Latin American studies, I traveled to Guatemala and studied Spanish in the summer twice. And so I, I decided I liked it. Mm. And then I came, I visited the lake, and then I realized that, that the Mayan people, and it is a rural indigenous culture, uh, were not so different from the, uh, the Asian indigenous culture that I had come in contact with. The, uh, the rural culture, which were, were the, were the, uh, which were the Vietnamese. Mm. And uh, actually I did two, two, both of my tours in Vietnam was or as an advisor to, to Vietnamese. And so I, I got used to living with in, within an indigenous culture in the field and uh, getting 
getting to enjoy the simplicity of it and the natural logic of it, I thought at the time. And so when I, I came to Lake Atitlan, which is loaded with indigenous people, uh, this seemed like a like, like the, the better choice for me. Yeah, I, I, I've only been here about uh, a week now, but I can relate to a certain degree about really appreciating the indigenous culture here. And I find it interesting that you say it reminds you of the indigenous culture in the Asian countries that you you visited. And it, I have this I have this, this uh, sort of suspicion that there are universal commonalities among indigenous cultures as much as there is diversity within the traditions and the customs. There are certain overarching commonalities about a, a simpler way of life. And I find myself becoming more and more interested in that, more curious about it. Um, and so, yeah, I can understand you arriving here and, and feeling that connection. Um, I'm just curious then how it goes from deciding that Guatemala is a place for you and then to where we are now, we're inside of this building that, um, was this here when you arrived? Or did you build the this? structure was here yeah. okay but I, everything in here is mine and so what what do you call this facility a hotel or um no it used to be a hotel well it started out when i graduated from uh from this latin american studies program uh, at university of arizona in tucson uh i was offered i was actually recruited to run the cross-border adult education program for pima county college which is where tucson is located and I guess that was because uh, uh, they were looking for somebody to run that program and uh, because they, they were losing a resource, but they were looking for somebody who was mature. And uh, the fact that I was in my 40s already, I was a non-traditional non student and uh, I had been around the world and uh, I'd been successful in the military. I, you know, I retired at the rank of colonel. I'd worked in the Pentagon and you know, I'd done, done everything uh, that demonstrated that I could, I could handle management type things. So uh, they, they recruited me and I started, I started doing those cross border tours. And uh, that just led uh, from one thing to another. The, uh, actually, I wrote, a, I wrote my first book as a civilian uh, about, uh, about the, it was it's called, it was the uh, historical missions of the Arizona Sonora borderlands. And it, it dealt to a large extent with the indigenous people in Sonora hmm. because uh, th that mission, there was a mission chain that went through Sonora, which was a little different than most of the mission chains that arrived in the United States. Uh, most of them were Franciscan. When you and, say a mission chain? Well, it, it's a, uh, it, it was a, it, you know, a collection of churches that were built along as, a, as, as a, the missionaries were moving into the wilderness. I see. Uh, they build one and then go a little bit further and build another one and go a little further and build another one. I see. So this this constituted a chain of missions. Uh -huh. And the ones that are better known in Texas and uh, California were Franciscan. Uh, the one in that went from Sonora to into Arizona was Jesuit. And uh, the Jesuits are considerably different than the Franciscans and the indigenous people they encountered were unique as well. And uh, so I got really interested in that. And so I wrote my first book 
about the, about that area, the history, the cultural history of that area. Yeah. Sort of the the cultural exchange between those Jesuit missionaries and the Sonoran indigenous. People. Pretty much so, yeah. That, that oh, was that was a bulk of it. It dealt with other things like the architecture of the churches and those kinds of things, but it was more about uh, what what that whole evolution of of uh, society was all about in that area. Because if you go there today, it's still most of Sonora is is pretty rural. I mean, Hermosillo, the capital, is is very modern, but for the most part, it's a it's a rural uh, state. And so, uh, so I don't know how we got onto this point. Yeah, actually, can I follow that tangent for a bit, and sure. then we'll come back to where we are right now sure. in your this this place, this facility, whatever we'll call it. But um, so this, yeah, this is just an interesting topic, and if you've written a book on it, then perhaps you can speak to it. Yeah. Um, I'll just be completely honest. When I think about or reflect upon the concept of a missionary, there's this part of me that that like tightens up the idea that uh, essentially one group of people go to another part of the world and decide we've got something that you should be believing in or, or like our way of life mm -hmm. is like perhaps better than yours and um, you can learn a lot from us. Yeah, I'm trying to be as gentle with it as I can without yeah. being really biased. Yeah, but um, I understand. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, well, uh, what you say is is true. You know, it's it's sort of like uh, even us with our Peace Corps. Uh, sometimes we go to go to places and try and tell people uh, who we think are are less intelligent or less developed at least than we are for one reason or another. Uh, that this is the right way to do something. This is a better way to live. Yeah, yeah. and it's not necessarily so. Uh, and I ran into that in Vietnam too. I, I could talk to talk to that as a point, but it's an aside. And so uh, the the thing that I found found unique about the, the, well, first of all, the, the missionary system they 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 called the combination of the conquistadors, the the conquerors, the Spanish conquerors, and the uh, and the missionaries as as the partnership of the sword and the cross. And so uh, every place the conquistadors went. They brought their missionaries along, and the purpose of the missionaries was to pacify the people. And in other words, to make them and, and to convince them that uh, Spanish Spanish culture, which included Catholicism at, at that point in time, was a form of Christianity. Uh, that that was the way. That was a, that was the truth as far as the way to go. And and the indigenous people many times didn't buy into it, but so the sword became more important than the cross because there was always an effort to con convince them spiritually that the king and the pope, you know, were, were the smartest guys in the world. And uh, a lot of, people, of course, a lot of the people didn't buy that. So, but among the missionary orders, I found the Jesuits more interesting than others because uh, they, were the, they were the arm of the Catholic Church against basically the Reformation in Europe. You know, the Catholicism had gotten very uh, decadent and so Martin Luther, Martin Luther came along. I almost said Martin Luther King. Martin yeah. Luther came along yeah. and uh, started this Reformation movement. And uh, it took Catholicism out of the hands of, of, of the Pope and the church in a good part of Europe, mm -hmm. uh, especially Germany, the Germanic states. And so the, the, the Jesuits became the counter-Reformation movement. They were very zealous. They were mostly young, very zealous 
people who believed in Catholicism very strongly. And so their, their first line of battle was against the Reformation in Europe. But they were, they were combatant. They were, they were very aggressive. And so uh, when they tried to spread beyond Europe, because there was an opportunity to do that, they did all kinds of interesting things. They even, for instance, uh, they adopted Hispanic names so that they would be accepted by the, by the colonial society. Just a, a word on that. Hispanic, what, what, is, what, what does that word actually mean? Hispa that's from Hispaniola, Spain? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the culture that uh, basically spread from the Mediter Mediterranean Catholic world of, of Italy, Spain, France. Uh, but but it, his, Hispanic specifically was more from the Iberian Peninsula, which today is Portugal and, and Spain. So when you say that the Jesuits took on Hispanic names. Yeah, so they took on names like Rivera. Where were they coming? Where were the Jesuits coming from prior to joining forces? Europe, with the... Europe mostly places like Germany and uh, could have been the Netherlands, could have been France, it could have been any place. But they, uh, uh, they were a religious order, which uh, the head of that order had, you know, was in contact, in direct contact with the, with the Pope. And uh, they saw this as an opportunity, the new world, as they called it, was, was a new world to them. But they saw this as, as virgin territory and, and uh, a major challenge to bring the true faith to the uh, to the people who lived there who didn't obviously didn't know what it was all about. So, so they were taking on Hispanic names so that they could gain the favor of the conquistadors and travel to. Well, they so they, they could gain acceptance within the, the Spanish world at that time, the Spanish Empire. Okay, uh, so and they, travel with the conquistadors to yeah, the New World yeah. and to settle. In, in, for instance, Nueva España, New Spain, which became Mexico largely, uh, and uh, work within that structure, that colonial structure. And so they, and they were, they tended to be an order that was uh, a very educated order. Uh, and they were a very inquisitive <coughs> order in their own way because they didn't accept everything that the Catholic Church uh, uh, put out in the terms of doctrine. They, they did a lot of introspection. And in reality, they were finally uh, removed from the New World by the Spanish crown, who decided that they were a little too, uh, a little too uh, out of the mainstream hmm. and not to be trusted, because they started in a lot of ways defending the rights of the indigenous people. The Jesuits did. Yeah, as long as if the, the, the indigenous people that would accept the church became the children of the Jesuits, and they would fight for their rights over being abused, exploited, and so forth by the, by the Spanish settlers. And this didn't go over very well with the Spanish settlers in, in, in the New World. So uh, there was a lot, because a lot of them were also Germanic, because this is where the Counter-Reformation evolved. Uh, the, the, uh, the Spanish uh, king was, uh, was uh, eventually convinced that they were maybe uh, not loyal to the Spanish crown and that they weren't even necessarily mainstream to the Catholic Church. And so the, the Spanish crown convinced the Pope that these, these people were not to be trusted. So they were all rounded up, imprisoned, and sent back to, back to Europe. This conversation is it's opening, it's, it's busting wide open. And <laughs> so I'm, I'm now, um, let's see, where to focus it? Because, well, I, I'm enjoying bringing it to my own 
perspective. That's all I really can do. Being here, as I'm making friends and connecting with the locals here, I too am experiencing some sort of desire to want to offer help or support as it's needed because the friends that I'm connecting with, some of them do express to me some of the challenges that they're facing. Uh, one friend, for example, has got a leaking roof. Um, so, yeah, there are these challenges and I can check my own desires. Okay, here I am in this new country and I might think I know a thing or two about living comfortably and healthy. And I can almost understand the ideas behind the missionaries, although I, I sort of see like two, now that you're bringing in the Spanish conquistadors as well, there's like all these different desires. One desire is, hey, we have our religion and we'd like for you to, to we want you to be a part of our religion. There might also be this other desire of the missionary that is, hey, we see that you're dealing with sickness and lack of health. Maybe we can help you with that because we have our technological advancements with medicine. And then I'm also hearing you say that that those were maybe the missionary desires. The Spanish had their own desires. And when the missionaries began defending the indigenous people's rights, then the Spanish had their own ulterior motives that were perhaps compromised. Yeah. So there's all these different desires and agendas at play. That's fascinating. And uh, I'm, I'm like, where do we go with that? Where do we focus on? I, I suppose it'd be, for the sake of this conversation, maybe bringing it towards the cultural exchange. Because the book that I've, I've read, Natural Healing, it does kind of focus on a cultural exchange in terms of ideas around healing and health. Mm -hmm. which is probably like the greatest area to exchange ideas. Hey, what do you know about healing? Oh, I know this. Yeah. The, the thing that fascinated me when I got here, because I, for instance, I have this garden of medicinal plants and it's, it's probably, well, there's no, no doubt about it as a tutorial garden. I call it a tutorial garden as opposed to a working garden where I'm processing medicinal plants and selling the products. There are some of those in places like San Juan. Mm. Okay. But in, in this case, this is purely instructional. Tutor, I call it tutorial. I wasn't interested in gardens when I was in the military. And in fact, when some of my friends found out later, uh, the friends, some of my acquaintances found out later on, colleagues, you could call them, later on that I had doing things like working with medicinal plants and I was creating a medicinal plant garden, they thought I went crazy. Huh. They said, what's the matter with you? You know, Like Colonel Richard is growing herbs now. Yeah, Colonel Richard is growing <laughs> herbs. Instead of burning fields, he's planting, he's planting seeds. You wow, know? wow. So uh, anyway, uh, I, the thing that happened to me was when I, because I have this fascination for indigenous cultures, uh, because I, I came to realize in Vietnam for the first time that uh, other cultures, although we're all human, and I think humanity has a lot of positive qualities, universally, that there tends to be different, we have different centers because of maybe belief, belief systems that evolved over time that are unique to, you know, to the environment. And, uh, and I, got, I became fascinated by that in Asia. Uh, and then when I came here, I found out it was there and I said, I have to find out the center of their universe. You know, I have to find out 
why they think the way they do and they think things differently than we normally do. And so, uh, and I, so I start looking into the culture and I find out, well, that a very prominent characteristic of, uh, of, the, of Mayan culture is, is medicinal natural healing, of course, because they didn't have doctors and scientists, they didn't have empirical science. They, they tend to be more intuitive than that. Their, their knowledge tends to be more intuitive based and empirically based, like, like for one reason or another. Uh, our culture, you know, our culture, I'm talking about Western civilization, how that evolved. And so uh, uh, even, their, even their, their basic way of looking at reality is a little different. Uh, and I got into that in a little bit in the foreword of my, of my book. Mm -hmm. you know? So the, the, natural, the natural healing was, was logical and faith in what you believed in was logical. And so uh, then, you know, you take, your, you, you take our Western science and we apply concepts like the placebo effect to uh, how people get healed with medicine. And we've, we've learned that we don't understand why sometimes a control group uh, also has healing within it because the people believe that they're taking, <laughs> that they're taking something that's gonna cure them. When, when I was in Vietnam and uh, I almost died, I had been badly wounded in, a, in the jungle and I was spent about 20 hours just trying to stop my bleeding from all the different parts of my body. And uh, finally got out and I lived, I, I had passed out several times and never, you know, assuming I wouldn't wake up and I woke up anyway. And then, uh, you know, I went through a little bit of other activity and I'd pass out again. And I, you know, I, this was stepped. And then when I spent a lot of time in a hospital after that, I, I, I got fascinated by, you know, why, why did I live? What, what was it that drove me to, you know, not just give in and die? And then I came out to some conclusion. Uh, and so uh, I, I started reading these survival books. And I realized that so many times some people survived and other people died because of the human will and the power of the human mind. It all comes from the brain, but the brain is something physical you can touch. But the human mind is something that comes out of that, but transcends that. And so uh, my reading moved in that direction. The, the plants, uh, I, I came to find out some of them, the scientists have been able to isolate characteristics that cause healing and to some degree that even been copied into you know pharmaceutical products mm -hmm. but there's some of them that they haven't figured it out yet maybe they're there those those properties are there maybe they're not but it's it's never just the chemical it's never just the thing that they can put their finger on uh, and so uh, that 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 was a fascination that developed with medicinal plants and a natural healing uh, that uh, that evolved what I've created here. So I want to just try and make the connection here. You have this near-death experience mm -hmm. in Vietnam, and that causes you to reflect upon the nature of the human will and why some people will die in a certain experience, and in the same experience, others will live. And that sort of led you down, I guess we could call it like this rabbit hole of... The power of the human mind. The power of the human mind. Now, what's the connection you're making to the chemicals and plants with that? Well, uh, an indigenous person may take a plant to get healed. And 
the healing property might be all or partly the, the, the ingredient in that plan that scientists, Western scientists have figured out is really, is really a healing, uh, really, really a he healing product. Or, uh, but in some cases it's not. In some cases it's just, again, the power of the mind uh, that has said, this is going to fix me, this is going to heal me, and I want to get healed. I want right. to be better. Right. I don't want to die. You know, or I don't want to be sick. Right. And so the mind, the human mind is working, interacting with the plant. And to some degree, the plant might have a characteristic in it that has been chemically demonstrated to have medicinal qualities. But to some degree, or in some cases, not at all, and people still get better. Sugar pill. Just by taking like a sugar pill or something. Yeah. Yeah. Not knowing it's a sugar pill. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it is really, it's like the most fascinating topic, the placebo. I mean, in the, in the U.S. we call it the placebo effect. And I feel like there's almost this idea that it's like cheating in a way. Like people feel like it, oh, you cheated me or something. Whereas I I'm guess I'm understanding from you and from reading your book that the, the idea of belief is like central to the healing modalities in the mind culture. Yeah. And if I could, if I could draw out a thesis or a, an overarching message of your book, it's that healing is almost in, in yeah, I don't know, not entirely, but like belief, be, the power of belief and the power of the mind in healing um, is, is essential. In, in natural, in natural medicine, you've got to at least be open to uh, the possibility. And the, the, if you're convinced, that's even easier. There's, no, I, I enjoy reading Andrew Weil. I don't know if you know who I am. Oh my, the quotes that you shared in your book from Andrew Weil were fantastic. Yeah. Really great quotes. The ironic thing is I've never met the guy, although I was living in Tucson and he has a home outside of Tucson in the desert. He's in Tucson. Yeah. I'm determined to get him on this podcast, so. Stay tuned. The problem, the problem is that uh, he has successfully, he and his organization have pretty well successfully isolated him uh, and commercialized uh, a lot of what he's doing. And uh, to what extent that he views it that way is, is another thing. I don't know. But for instance, if you, if you want to talk to Andrew Weil, you almost have to sign up for one of his uh, conferences, uh -huh. one of his activities. Uh, he has a, he has a, a, uh, he has an office at the University Medical Center at the University of Arizona because they have a university hospital there. And he has his own center in that, within that university hospital structure, but you'll never find him in the office. He has a mailbox there. And every day, somebody takes his mail and gets in a four-wheel drive and drives out to his place in the desert, huh. which is not public knowledge. Oh my gosh. How do you know this? I, because I went through this drill. I wanted him to read the manuscript of my book and come back to me. And and did you get... It, it never it never got to him. Ah. It, it, maybe he was traveling somewhere and some somebody in between decided he was too busy or to some for some reason or not, which it would just just amazing. You know? So uh, it uh, I, I've never I've still never talked to him, but I've read I've read a lot of his stuff, and. Uh, what I've just said is not meant to be derogatory to him as a person, because what I've found out about people is people who start getting famous, uh, 
tend to be other people think they're taking care of them. You know, well, there's only so many hours in a day. This guy can only do so many things. Uh, well, our job is to, his staff is there to protect him and make right. sure he stays focused in what he wants to be focused Shit. in. But they don't always know. And they don't know what's in this person's inner mind. This could be the president of the United States. It could be a rock star. It could be Andrew Weil, you know. But people tend to get protected by their staff, their, the agents around them, some of whom are very altruistic and have good intentions and others who might just have motives, you know, for doing that. So. Yeah, so I, I think... Um... As we, as we deepen the conversation about natural healing and specifically natural healing in the Mayan world, I think, it is, I think it'll be interesting to first speak a little bit more to Andrew Weil's ideas and how they've influenced you. Yeah, well, he believes that uh, much of what I've been talking about, the power of the human mind. And, uh, and also that the, the catalyst or, or the ignition to that power in, a, in, in the nature of healing, for instance, can be different kinds of things. Uh, but it all depends on how the, the mind involved looking for the healing, uh, how receptive that, that, that mind is to what is being offered. Uh, for instance, uh, a, a person who's, who's, a, who's a first world Catholic, but who's deeply religious, uh, or a Jew, or a, or a evangelical Protestant, if they have a strong enough belief in the powers of the, the holders of the religion, for instance, uh, they, that could be the spark. What a spark to what? To open up the powers within ourselves, the healing powers within ourselves. The, power, the, the, the powers that uh, allow us to exist in the environment we exist in, subject to germs and bacteria and everything else, because we're all, each and one of us, a zoo of, of so many different things going on inside of us, that there has to be a balance. And uh, the human being has survived because it, uh, it, has, it has a certain balance of things. And when things get out of balance, uh, there's, there's something within us, some kind of energy or capacity within us that works to bring that thing, things back into, into balance again. If we fail to do it ourselves, uh, sometimes an outside source. It could be a, you know, it could be a, a person. It could be a belief in something else, uh, like the power of uh, Madas the Madasano fruit, or it could be anything because it's it's in our culture. We've been led to believe that this will help us, and so whatever it is, something can cause a spark that uh, that heals us, and it's not necessarily the healing doesn't take place outside. What's outside the body is really uh, something that, that helps ignite what's inside of us to, to make it work. Uh, there's, this, you know, there's all these ideas about external energy and uh, you know, the crown chakra and absorbing the energy from the, the external universe. Not to belittle that stuff, because I think there's something to it, but we just don't understand it. I had an experience where uh, a good friend of mine who... Uh, Was, who's, an, who's a, a shaman of sorts. She used to call herself a witch doctor, uh, jokingly. Uh, but first world person, but Hispanic, uh, got very sick in the street and got passed out. She was going through a difficult spell in her life. 
and somebody came to, to help her and they said, where, where can we take you? They said, take me to Richard's place, Los Pasados Encuentros. So I was, we actually had a workshop going on here with, uh, we were talking about pranic healing and we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, energy, energy therapy, Reiki and that's these kinds of things. And I had a group of people here who were experiencing Reiki. They brought her into the house and uh, they said, what are we going to do? What should we do? I said, take her to the bedroom in the back, have her lie down and we'll make her comfortable. And then I explained to the people in the workshop, the one who was running the workshop was a woman who uh, learned uh, what they, we call pranic healing. I call pranic healing more energy, energy therapy. And there's light, hers, her brand was, it was light touch energy. And so it was, you know, it was just, it wasn't massage. It was just light touch and, and meditation and, and focus on, on what, what she was doing, looking for the hole in the, you know, in the aura of the, of the person, as I guess a lot of times to talk about. So we laid her down and I went in, some of us went into the room and, and the woman who was in charge, who had actually learned her therapy among the Aborigine people in Australia. And uh, she said, let's, uh, let's just all gather around the bed and let's just focus on her and try and try and help her out. And she said, Richard, I'm afraid she might throw up. Would you get a bucket or a pail or something and hold it by her, hold her by her head uh, in, in case she gets nauseous? So I did that. And so I'm, I'm by her head. I'm holding her head here and I got this pail here and everybody's doing their, their meditative thing and, and you know, trying to trying to extend their energy into her a healing type energy and all of a sudden i got this feeling that passed from her through me it was like a it was like dull dull electricity not painful but just like brrr, like a vibratory energy that ran from the back of her head ran through my body and down through my my feet and I didn't know what it was. And she opened her eyes and she smiled. And everybody around me just looked at me and said, what happened to you? Because they saw it. I, my face went, made some kind of an expression. I didn't understand it. Or I didn't even know it. I wasn't looking in a mirror. But something about my character made them realize that something had passed from her through me and had left her. And, and then, then later on, and she got better in a, in a hurry. And people said to me, oh, you're a real, you know, you're a real guru, you know, you really ought to develop that. And I said, you know, I'm not there. I'm not there to do that. It's, it's not what I feel I should be doing. I think this was situationally specific. I really cared about this person. She really sensed that I cared about her. And somehow her spirit, her spiritual power got rid of what was eating at her and she found me a con to be a good conduit. And I said, but I don't think I could go around healing people. You know, I don't think that's me. You know, I, I, that's too much to work toward. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy doing my medicinal plants and stuff. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff that when I was 30, when, you know, when I was in graduate school or in college or whatever, or in the military and we do everything very methodically and coldly, you know, we, you, you walk, you walk down a road and you look at a field and you don't see the beauty of the grass and the trees and the leaves and the, and the blades of grass. 
you see what we call fields of fire. Where am I going to put the machine guns? Where am I going to put the mortars? This, this type of weapon has direct line of fire or a flat trajectory. This type has high angle of fire. That, you know, that's, that's a kind of world I came from. And then suddenly I'm having, having an experience like this. And I said, there's, and it's fed, you know, this fed my interest too. These kinds of, I, there are other cases, you know, but this is, this was another case. Yeah. It's really, yeah, first I just want to honor that story. That's a great, great story. One thing that's uh, curious for me is I'm hearing you say that, um, and actually I think Andrew Weil maybe even says this in the in, your, in that quote from your book, that the healer doesn't actually give or do any healing. They're just sort of initiating or creating a space for the person to to spark their own internal yeah. healing. Yeah. But I'm also hearing you say that... That doesn't mean that that person can't lend energy to the process. Ah, and maybe okay. that energy helps to spark. Okay. Okay. But the, the essential healing does not come from that external force. It comes from something inside. Right. Right. It's like a starter on a car. The, you have an engine and you have something that gets it, cranks up the engine and gets it going. Gotcha. And would you say that's a, this, a similar phenomenon with the plants? That the plant... It can be. It can be. But again, some of the plants we know have, have chemical products that even if a person is, is an atheist and goes to the pharmacy and buys it. You know, the aspirin comes from a bark of a tree, you know? Uh, and so in many cases, not in all cases, okay. or in some cases, a little bit of both. So at, at that moment in time, when the, this energy passed through you, uh, where did that take you? What, what, what felt like the next, the next step for you? Were you curious to deepen this journey or what, what did it feel like? I, I, you know what, I, and I smack myself in the face over this sometimes. Sometimes I'm so involved in other things that I don't take the time to probably do what I ought to do. That uh, I'm so caught up in the immediacy of what I'm doing that, uh, or other external interests, it could be family, it could be be anything you know it could be some some notion i arrived at that i should be working towards something and i didn't want to be distracted and so i what what i did was i what i did ultimately was it, it led in part to the writing of the book um, but i've never felt that i was ready to make the full investment in the in, in the time and and uh, time more than anything else, unfortunately. I, I've, got a, I've got a very strong feeling of the finite nature of, our, of the existence we're aware of here on this, you know, in this lifetime that we have. And so sometimes I don't explore things just because I get dis distracted, diverted. And so I, it could be the wrong decision. Maybe I should have taken that and set about becoming a a healer, you know, maybe I should have, but I had things going on around me. Yeah, I feel like just from our short talk here and from reading your book, the role that you've taken on is more like an emissary, yeah. sort of like an intermediary that although you are not the one giving the healing, offering the healing, 
you are bridging the gap between worlds and, and sharing with the world us here's here are some stories of healing from the mind world yeah. well you know uh i went into the military as a profession because quite frankly it, i was attracted to things like being in the woods a simple life i i like i like dealing with the thought of mortality uh I like the idea that uh, I like the idea I could jump out of an airplane and if I chose to not pull the ripcord. I enjoyed the idea that I could squeeze a trigger and kill myself if I wanted to, if I wasn't interested in living. Playing flirting with death uh, was very early in my life because I lost my mother uh, when when I was five. She decided to end her own life, and uh, I, I spent a lot of time as I grew thinking about you know, the, our purpose and, you know, why we're here. I've never come to any real conclusion, just like I spent a lot of time thinking about God and whether or not he really exists or not, or if he, he or she exists, what, it, what does he or she look like? You know, and then I put it aside because that's not answerable. Uh, but it's helped me become more intuitive because I couldn't, I couldn't reach those things uh, through empirical knowledge. And so those things were useful explorations. The, uh, the near-death experience was, was what brought it back to a large extent. Uh, but I didn't, that I didn't die, well, why didn't I? You know, I didn't even think life was important to me that much. But then I thought about it, and it was. I had two young kids back, back in the United States. I didn't really know their father. They were about, the, my, they were about my age when my mother died. And now they're, they're four or five years old, and what happens if I disappear? So I, I concluded that there was something there that was attracting me to become a meaningful father as soon as I could get back there to do it. And so that was probably what, what helped me do it. But uh, the, the emissary thing, yeah, the, what I, what I, I went, as I started to say, I, I got off on a tangent. I, I went in the military just because I liked the element of danger, perhaps, the element of dealing with my own existence, having the, the power of doing or not doing. Uh, confronting, you know, confronting my mortality. But over time as I grew, and I think I matured, uh, because that wasn't probably a very mature way of thinking, looking at life, uh, I came to realize that I liked certain things and I enjoyed sharing what I liked with other people. And so when I was getting ready to retire, I said, what do you really want to be? And I, I had had some, I had worked at, Rutgers University, I'd worked at Seton Hall University within the military science department. But I was teaching things like military history and leadership and management. And I just, some of those, some aspects of those things I liked. And I decided what I enjoyed most was learning about things that interested me and sharing those things with people who were interested. And I said, oh, that's perfect, you know. And so I, it's back to what you said. I was, I was a, an emissary or a conduit for what I thought was interesting, interesting information, mm -hmm. be it military information, be it spiritual information, be it, you know, whatever kind of information. So I, 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 I've spent a lot of time in schools in my life. Uh, I've got a couple of master's degrees. I chose to go to branch out rather than concentrate on getting a doctoral degree because mm -hmm. there were too many things that, at other levels that interested me. Uh -huh. uh -huh. uh, I, I moved here to just do what I ever wanted to do, and I've been doing whatever I wanted to do. 
And uh, fortunately, I survived the military, so I have my government dole. And uh, the experience was, was useful to me, but I've got three sons, and uh, none of them were ever interested in following that pursuit, and I've never encouraged them to. So uh, uh, one of them is, is very spiritual, my oldest son. He's been very much into American Indian culture, and we, we share that when, we, we get, when we're together. Yeah. How you, you want to take a break? How you doing? You have to take a leak. Let's take a break. <laughs> okay, back from our break. And uh, yeah, so you kind of just led me back into it. Um, I really appreciate what you just said that your earlier life was perhaps more um, hardlined in terms of. Uh, being in the military and yeah, just sort of having your, your focus um, in, in the more Western world of things. And then it's interesting. It seems like a common human phenomenon that a near death experience can really open us up to many more possibilities in our lives. Yeah. And you know, I'll tell you, there was another element to that about Vietnam. Uh, when I, because I was living with people who were rural and uh, who were basically fighting for their lives and uh, still had families and other people that were important to them to consider, that uh, I came back to the United States both times, and the second time was more of an impact than others. And I saw this, what Vance Packard calls relentless materialism, this values placed on the electronic media, this values placed on a new car, this value play being placed on electronic gear. And, and uh, it, seemed, it seemed so stupid to me. And I was almost ashamed of my own culture. Uh, and it's, it's not so uncommon. I've talked to other people who have been in a, you know, fought, fought in a war and seen a lot of violence and seen a lot of misery and, and the human spirit struggling to survive. And to come back to the opulence, the, the luxury of the way we're, we're brought up and accustomed to live. And it's, you know, so that, that was part of it too. And the near-death experience, of course. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, and like your, your eyes were kind of opened um, to see that. To what was really important, you know, what was to, closer to the core of human nature. Yes. Yeah. And, and then you, you also just said that at least what I, the way I interpreted what you said is that it doesn't serve any good to feel any sort of regret about what's already been experienced in my life rather and not to see myself oh that was a waste of time now I'm more interested in this it's all part of this yeah, continuum progression you couldn't be where you are now without what you've already experienced exactly. yeah and I really appreciate all that you have experienced because the way that you write it really speaks to to my understanding, um, the way you're, it's a really clear language. Um, and I'm sure that you've had experiences talking with people perhaps more in like the healing realms and they have a, just a different way of communicating these concepts and ideas. And then of course there's like the hardline materialist scientists who seem to be a little bit more closed off to different ways of healing. And so you being an emissary, you're kind of, you can bridge the gap. You're in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that uh, 
the Mayan, the Mayan healers uh, who work with them, what they think of as Mayan cosmology, their, their belief system, uh, in their effort to, to proselytize and to spread that, their own beliefs, uh, because it's their version of reality and in a way they're missionaries themselves, uh, have felt it necessary to resort sometimes to people like Westerners, you know, people who have, because information gets transmitted by books and by podcasts and by internet and so forth. And so they're relatively uneducated or maybe not educated in a formal sense at all. So they have to look to sometimes to people who have an education to do that. And some people do that in a more, in a more honest form and in a less, more altruistic form than others. I've, I've, I've bumped into a couple of uh, Guatemalans who are not, don't have a, if they have a drop of indigenous blood in them, it's not much. They're, they've got graduate degrees in anthropology and so forth. They graduated from school, they didn't know what to do with themselves. So they said, oh, I'm gonna get into this, I'm gonna get into this Mayan culture and become a spokesman for it. And so they did and they wrote the, they wrote the books, but uh, they, they haven't necessarily absorbed the spirituality of what it's all about. Mm. And uh, that, that, but they're still doing a service in a, in a way because they're, they're, they're doing a service of, of at, at, at least being emissaries. Uh, I like to think of myself as not somebody like that. I like to think of myself as somebody to the extent that I explain things I'm explaining what I've come across that's interested me, that I believe in, that I think is interesting to share with some other people. Other people will be bored to death with it, you know. <laughs> what are you wasting your time with that stuff for? But for me, you know, that's what I want to do, and that's who I am. So that's a really interesting point, and I, I, I hope I didn't um, neglect to see that, but you being... Um, so you just mentioned these folks who take on this role of being a spokesperson without actually absorbing the spirituality. Do you feel that being a, uh, that you, I mean, having written about natural healing, you are a spokesperson, but do you feel that you have absorbed the spirituality? Yeah. I, I don't do anything that I don't believe in. So these, I don't write, I don't write to sell books and make money. You know, I, uh, for better or for worse, uh, I'm, I'm retired. I get a full pension. That's not a lot of money, but for here it's pretty good money. You know, to live in a place like Guatemala, it's fine. I've got a, I've got a uh, I've got a disability. I get, I get additional money for the disability. Uh, I pretty much overcome. Well, no, I, I've gone to a large extent of, I've, I've learned how to live with a disability, but, uh, but it, it I, I've got money for that. I've got money for Social Security because I'm, I'm at the age I'm, I'm at, and so I don't need. To me, and I don't care about new cars. I don't care about, you know, big flat screen televisions. It's it's not it's just not my interest. So, I'm just doing what I want to do, and I'm not writing books to make money. You know, I, everything I've ever written, I've written because it's something I learned and wanted to express it and share it. So, I wrote that first book I wrote about the Arizona Sonora borderlands. I had graduated from Latin American studies. In, at the University of Arizona, and uh, I was asked to take over that that, that program uh, at Pima College, and uh, I said, "Well, you know, it isn't what I really studied. I was still, 
I was studying contemporary Mexicans and, and Central American uh, uh, government and politics and culture, not, not uh, the, the history, the cultural history of, of, this, of this, this region. And they said, well, yeah, but you're, you can deal with that, can't you? And I said, yeah. So I did. I, I said, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to do this for them, because it was a challenge, uh, because it was along the general line of what I was interested in, and it was something that I thought, well, I could get into. Uh, so I started studying. I, I started making trips into, into Sonora, going into rural areas, visiting uh, the people in these little towns that had these little churches that had been built hundreds of years ago. And, uh, and then I said, well, I'm going to write about this. Because I started, as I, when I started doing the tours, because it, it involved educational tours into Mexico, so uh, I said, well, people are going to ask questions. Where can they read about this now that they're seeing it? Where can they read about more about it? I found out there was nothing good out there. So I wrote a book about it the way I saw it. And so I, I took, uh, I, I took the, uh, the manuscript because I was already connected with the University of Arizona from studying. I took the manuscript to, their, to the university publications place, and I said, uh, I think this is good. I think you ought to publish this. And uh, they said, okay, we'll, we'll, take, we'll farm it out to our, our experts. So where did it go? Went to the anthropology department. There were three professors in the anthropology department who were working together, collaborating on a book of what I had just written. They were all PhDs. They had been working on this for years, but because they had egos, they weren't able to resolve the style and the manner of doing it, but they felt that sooner or later they would. Now this guy with a master's degree comes in who shouldn't know anything compared to what they know and he's presenting a manuscript right. on the subject matter. Right. And so they, they panned the book, they panned the manuscript, Pan. they went back and said, uh, there's too many errors in here. Uh. What they didn't know that I had researched my work through, through other people to include people at the university who weren't in that anthropology department. And so uh, uh, I went back and, and I, 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 I got very upset. It's one of the reasons I left Arizona and came here, what I did. Because uh, I, I wasn't set on necessarily leaving there because I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed that environment too. And uh, so I decided to publish it through my, through my own company that I had formed. And uh, it was picked by the Arizona Daily Star, which is the biggest newspaper in Arizona, as one of the best books on the Southwest published that year. And I self-published it. And so I went back and stuck it in her ear. Never heard, never heard another word. You know? <laughs> but, you know, you do what you want to do. You do what you believe in. And if it's within your resources, anyway. In that case, I was planning on buying a, a four-wheel drive diesel pickup truck. And I had the money put together. And I said, screw it, you know, I'm going to spend the money on the publishing a book. And so I continued to put up with the old car I had. You know, <laughs> and, I, and I felt a lot better for having done it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that was your first book, you said? Yeah, yeah, that was my first book. Uh -huh. I've written three since I've been here. Yeah, I'm seeing them. So, so... We're here at uh, Posada Los Encuentros. Yeah. Let's come back to that. Um, Posada's hotel. It's a it's a place of repose. It's a place of rest. It's uh, commonly in you know in 
it's commonly thought of as a, a place where one can reflect, like a retreat, but not necessarily. It might just be a temporary. It might be an overnight posada. It's, it's you know a, a place where you can get a, you can get a rest, whatever kind of rest you need, wherever you're going. And uh, it, in, it commonly trans, translates in uh, around here, you know, in Latin America as a, as a hotel, a lodging. A lodging. Yeah. And Los Encuentros is the encounters? The encounters, yeah. Okay. And so the, the idea of that is uh, because in the process of wanting to share, you know, the word you used, emissary, uh, because I, I think this is all fascinating, uh, I wanted to be able to share it with people from where I came from, you know, at first world culture back in New Jersey and Arizona, all the places I ever lived, but people who didn't have the, the energy, the time or the disposition to seriously study Spanish or to take the time to immerse themselves in, in this kind of thing. So the idea was to create an environment where I could bring first world people in to know the, the Mayan culture uh, on the cheap and on a, in a, in a the cliff version of the book, you know, and they could stay at my place where they could have cable TV, they could speak English uh, when they weren't out looking at what was going on and still get something out of the experience. They could meet healers, they could meet uh, uh, painters, uh, they could meet weavers, they could meet, you know, and all the people that represent the, the, you know, the, uh, the external elements of my culture. So here at the, the lodging of the encounters, yeah. Um, do you simply offer a space for people to stay, or do you also facilitate their touring around the area? Well, both, and, and to some degree, not much, much anymore. Because uh, what I found out is, you know, if you live, if you live within a, an environment, you have to deal with the government that you live with, that governs that area. Uh, so you have to have uh, what's what's known as a, uh, well, you have to have a business entity. Because if you want to open a bank account, you have to you have to have an organization. If you have an organization, it has to be approved by the government. If you, uh, if you have to work within the strictures and so forth. So I created a Sociedad Anonima, which is like a, a, a corporation in, in Western, you know, in our way of And uh, what's happened over time, unfortunately, because 20 years ago that was that was the way to go. For a foreigner to come in because it's it's an anonymous society. It's an anonymous society, which a corporation is. You know, it belongs to stockholders. You know. uh, but what's happened over time is the United States has gotten very interested in how its citizens are spending their money and doing things abroad. Maybe because out of a fear, or I imagine to some degree, that we're not paying taxes, or uh, we're we're playing a role in. in in the economy of the country without being held accountable. And so uh, I, I've come to find out that what I was doing was along the line of something called a uh, U.S. controlled foreign corporation. US and control. subject to strictures and reporting requirements and so forth. So I got out of it. I, you know, that's why I don't run a hotel anymore. Uh, I do what we're doing right now. I, people come by, I spend time talking to them. They want to buy my books. And my books are for sale. If people want to talk me into doing something like a workshop or a, you know, that I'm interested in, I get involved. But I, I don't do it in a way that it looks like a business because uh, 
and because it's too complicated for a, a, a foreigner like me at my level in doing what I do to conduct a business in, in the formal sense within the context of both Guatemalan government and the U.S. government. It's, uh, it's unfortunate. 20 years ago, it wasn't that way. That's the way it is today. Okay, so without, without it falling under the realm of business, are you facilitating uh, events or gatherings or workshops? Yeah, I, I still, right, this is still a cultural center. And uh, I do that completely without any profit. And it's not even organized as a nonprofit organization. It's something I do with people I care about. Like uh, this artwork all belongs to people I care about, you know. And I care about them because I find them interesting and they, they appreciate it. And I help them sell their work sometimes, but I don't take any money for it. I can live on my government dole, you know, and that's what I do. And so, uh, but, I, but out of interest, I do get involved in things. I usually have, you know, a couple of uh, ex expositions, expositiones as they call them in Spanish, or exhibitions, art exhibitions. The last one I had, I included weavers and medicinal plant people who process the plants and sell them. Uh, all indigenous people. And I, I had it here and I organized it, I scheduled it, I publicized it, and, you know. So I do that kind of thing, but not, not as a business. Mm. Uh, it's not even as a uh, organization. I do it as a, as a ritual, you know. As a community member. Huh? As a community member. Yeah, and, and as a, as a, as a call here a patron, as a, as a, as somebody who's just trying to do some good, because it's part of my philosophy that I've decided that if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna live, I might as well do something constructive, you know. Uh, it's a finite experience. It's, uh, in a way, it's a, it's a de facto gift from somebody. You can call him God, or you can say it's just the way it was, you know, it's just the way it's evolved. But I feel like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with uh, having an awareness of myself and, uh, and it's, it's temporary in this case. And uh, I should do something constructive with it. You know, otherwise, it, I might well not, I might as well just, because you know, it doesn't make any sense. Now, I may have understood this a little incorrectly from your book, but it seems as though through being here, you've been able to connect with many different healers in this area. Yeah. And so has that been a role for you, is connecting foreigners with indigenous healers? Yeah, I've, you know, when I was, when I was running, when I, when I created the Sociedad Anonima, and uh, I actually turned it over to other people in terms of, uh, of government, from, from a government standpoint to others. I continue to do it as a, uh, to the extent it helped indigenous people, uh, you can call it philanthropic. To the extent that uh, I was just satisfying myself, it was just a past time, you know. But I, I did it for the sake of the enjoyment of doing it. And I have, uh, I, I don't do it formally, like I used to advertise and so forth. I don't advertise anything like that anymore. Because then again, it gets into the business of, oh, uh, You've got, a, you've got an organized activity. You created the activity. Uh, uh, why are you doing that? Certainly you're getting something. Because that's the way the world thinks. You know? So you come over here and we're talking for two hours. Uh, and so I'm doing it because I want to do it. You know, I'm not doing it with the motive of uh, you know, going anywhere. Or get, I'm, I'll be curious to see how, this is, how you process this 
and how you, you put it out there. But it, it's just for the sake of knowing. It's not for the sake of, of using it as a platform for any self, you know, self-purpose. So I do, you know, I have, and, and I, I've gotten much more into writing, and I'm writing now. And so uh, I find that that's, that's a more efficient way of getting information out than to taking people around mm. and showing. And, uh, and maybe that's, you know, of course that's selfish. I, I'd like to reach more people with what I think is interesting. Sure. People who might be interested than, uh, than spending the time just focusing on people. But if people really interest me, uh, or if I, I think there's a, there, it'll serve any better, any other purpose, I'll take the time. I don't want to take much time with you now. Sure. So. Yeah, you know, just a little point I'll make about the word emissary because it keeps coming up in this conversation. In in Hebrew, which is a language I'm familiar with, emes uh, means truth. Emet. Okay. So to be an emissary is to be like a a, uh, a truthful uh, messenger. Yeah, a me- messenger. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so yeah, whether you're writing or whether we're having this conversation here or whether you're connecting travelers with healers, uh, that's one perspective with which to understand the work that you're involved in. Yeah, I I I become what I've become now is I become much more reflective and less physically active hmm. than I used to be. Just because I think it's time to, you know, after I've lived, I'm 76 years old. After I've lived 76 years, it's time to put together, it's time to put together the package, you know, to figure out, you know, what has it all been about? Uh, not that that's the end of it, uh, because somebody, you know, what I'm working at, I, 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 uh, well, actually, I've written one book that we haven't mentioned. I've written the first chapter of my life, part one. And I'm working on part two. And uh, people ask me, well, when are you going to end the part two? And I said, well, it's the second half of my life. How can, I, how can I end the book without not ending my life? So I had this conversation with one of my sons who has done a lot of the, uh, uh, the editing of, of part one. And I said, look, I don't think I'm going to finish this. I don't think I want to see it published while I'm alive. I said, when I, when I die, uh, if you will write a postscript, you know, an epilogue, yeah. and then you, you do with it what you want. Yeah. And uh, so that's basically, that's basically where that's going. You know? uh, but uh, so I, I tend to spend more time reflecting and articulating my reflections than I used to do. Mm. And especially since uh, I'm, I've become suspect by Guatemalan government and US government to maybe trying to avoid my my uh, my my responsibilities as a business, I I spend more and more time not doing things that are not cannot be criticized as business. Mm. And so uh, I rent what I do now is I'm running uh, what used to be my hotel. I've got I've got uh, apartments and studios. I got five of them. Uh, I'm running them to cover costs. Mm-hmm. Frankly, they don't they don't pay my overhead at this point in time. I've got three full time employees, and uh, and then electricity is not cheap in Guatemala, neither is gas. So uh, by the time I end up, by the time I finish paying my employees, 
uh, and paying my other expenses, there's no money left anyway. But that's okay because uh, I'm doing what I want to do. And so what I'm, I'm, I'm renting what I have just to cover the cost of what I have. And uh, actually, uh, uh, I've actually put up things for sale. I put up my house for sale. I put up my apartments for sale. Uh, and not again to make a killing or to, or to you know, put the money in a bank or to become a, a capitalist. Uh, but because it might help me do something that I might feel moved toward doing in the future. Mm -hmm. Moving to Brazil and, and seeing what the indigenous people are back back to Brazil are all about. Wow. Where, where, you know, the, the African slaves and the indigenous people formed groups that uh, have somehow survived and, uh, and, and found their own. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know, you know, but nothing I do is to put money in a bank. Yeah. I, you know, I've got to have money in a bank, but I don't do it to put money in the bank. It's just, just it's just, just a vehicle to, to explore, explore life. Yeah. yeah. So, so maybe we'll start to bring this to a close then. Um, do you have to get going? No, 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 we're fine. You're okay on time? Yeah, I just, yeah, when you started, I got the impression you thought I had to leave in the next two minutes. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, just to bring in your experience and your, your knowledge, having been here in this area now for how long? 20 years. 20 years. Longer than I've ever been any place in my life. I almost feel like I should move on. Ah, well, yeah, it sounds like you're, you might be ready for that. But what do, you, what do you feel excited to share about this mind culture, especially as it pertains to health and healing? Yeah, I, uh, the, the contemporary Mayan people evolved from a, from a, a different perspective than Western culture evolved. And they evolved in a way that was more intuitive than empirical. And uh, for that reason, I think they're somewhat more in touch with spirituality than people in Western civilization tend to be. Although there are always people in Western civilization who for one reason or another gravitated toward the spirituality of what their, their dispositions led them to based on, you know, if they were Catholic, they became Catholic priests or nuns. If they were Jewish, they became rabbis. Uh, but generally speaking, there's more spirituality within this contemporary Mayan culture than there is in contemporary Western culture, generally speaking. Uh, the unfortunate aspect of that is the, uh, there's, been a, there's been a lot of penetration of popular culture, which is, which is modern Western culture, a lot of penetration into their system. A lot of these people have come to believe that antibiotics are better than plants. And we've convinced them, they've become convinced of that. We didn't convince them, but for one reason or another, because of our, our influence, we've convinced them of that. But there's still a lot of what they were. And uh, you even find it comes out in some funny ways. You know, when you, you, you know, you talk to them about facts. You know, when you write my, one of my other books on Mayan fables, uh, I talk a lot about... Uh, about again the, the culture of what why you know how their stories evolved and where they have 
and it's uh, they'll tell you. I'll say, do you, do you hear any stories from your? You know, when I first came here, I started when I was traveling around the lake and I was trying to get to know the lake. I'd spent some time in each community around the lake, and I'd always try to introduce myself to somebody who seemed to to be genuine to the area, and uh, to talk to them about what they thought and how they believed in things. And I'd say, uh, did your grandfather ever tell you any stories? That's how my book on fables came about. And they said, yeah. And then they'd tell me the story and I'd say, wow, that's pretty far-fetched, isn't it? And they'd say, what do you mean? You know, oh, this, this probably really, this really, I, I think this really happened, you know? And you realize that they don't, they don't analyze everything the way we do. They don't analyze everything from the standpoint of science. They, they just feel what they feel. And I think that gives them a, a resilience to put up with adversity sometimes. You don't hear a lot about, you don't hear a lot about uh, suicide in Mayan culture. I'm sure it happens, yeah. But at the same time, here we are in the United States today with, you know, with it with the highest rate of, of youth suicide that, uh, you know, in recorded history. Uh, we have this huge population of veterans who went to war on behalf of their country who weren't appreciated when they got back and are dysfunctional people. They're living in the streets and, you know, killing themselves and killing their wives and children. And I think there's something that if you'll take the time like you're doing now to just sit down and, and, and get to know it, that you'll become stronger for it. You'll be a better person for it. Because it's, it's done that for me, I think. Yeah. And so, uh, I don't know if that goes along the way answering your question or not. I, I think that uh, there's something to be gained from all of, for all of us who come from that other type of culture to, to, to getting into this, to feeling it, and to, to understanding that Intuition is, is, is not a cop-out for being too lazy to learn hard facts. You know, right. Intuition is another dimension of, of ourselves. And it, 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 to some degree, it, it comes from things we don't understand. But uh, feeling good about things that you don't have to buy in a store. You know? Eating beans instead of steak, uh, if when you mix them with rice, you get a complete protein. You know? uh, there's, it's just it, it's just that there's something here that I think we lack in mainstream Western culture that uh, that's that that's beneficial. So. Yeah, you're, you're speaking right to my reflections of recently because I see so much value to that intuitive experience that that feels at the heart of the the indigenous way of seeing the world and, and interacting with the world and then yeah just like we don't want to regret any part of our lives like I don't want to feel regret or resentment towards the western mode of being in the world which is more scientific about needing facts and empirical knowledge and so for me it's been about synthesizing these worlds like finding what is great about both perspectives and then bringing them both together because while there's so much beauty to that intuitive experience, I am also seeing um, some suffering in the Mayan world, at least with the friends that I'm connecting with. Like, 
yeah, he's got a leaky roof and he needs a lot of help to fix his roof. So, you know, what, what, what do we do with that? Like, what, what does that, that bridge look like, the synthesis look like of bringing these worlds together? Yeah, we obviously have done a great deal with our society. We've, we've advanced in ways we feel are more meaningful. Then there's, a, there's this old Peggy Lee song, if we wait another day, the rain will go away and we'll need a window on such a sunny day. <laughs> so somehow you're going to help this guy with his roof. And that's, that's a good thing. And the roof will be fixed. But if you didn't do that, you'd find a way to stuff it up or do something with it or sleep in a different corner because the rain won't be coming in on that corner. It, it, we, we do what we choose to do. And uh, it's good to help people fix leaky roofs. And it's good to have pharmaceutical medicines, especially in a world that believes in them. Yeah. And, but they help their help. There's sometimes antibiotics will do things that for whatever reason, we can't summon the spiritual power to heal. But, but uh, so that's, uh, that's just, that's just the way it is. Uh, we tend to evaluate everything, the value of things by, you know, our own, our, our own uh, parameters that, that, that we've learned is early in life. You know, this is good, this is bad. And uh, suffering, of course, is always bad, but sometimes suffering brings out uh, something in us too. That when I suffered on a battlefield, you know, I got something out of it. I'm not, I'm not extolling the, the value of suffering, you know, that's, that's sick, you know, be sadistic, but, uh, but at the same time, it's, yeah, we're in this world for 60 to 100 years, and uh, what's most important? Well, I, I'm so grateful for the time okay. to share with you. Um, do you want to just mention the, the books that you've written or uh, yeah, sure. if people want to learn more about you and your yeah, works? Yeah, well, the key thing, in a way, is using picking up my mother's maiden name here is valuable because there's another Richard Morgan. So if you, if you, if you go on Kindle or if you go on, if you go on the Internet and you surf for my name, Richard Morgan will probably lead you to an English science fiction writer who's well known. Richard Morgan Shivist, S-Z-Y-V-I-S-T, <laughs> will lead you to me. And... Uh, my books are, I, I, when I first came here, I, I wrote a general book about what happened was uh, I got here and, and I realized that there were things worth knowing about that, that weren't generally known. For instance, in, in, in terms of the Mayan, Mayan artwork, Ingwat, the Tourist Institute, had, uh, had done a lot you know, for Santiago Atila, uh, the artists there, but there were very gifted artists in smaller towns around the lake. So I started writing for this magazine, or the Review magazine, uh, again, not for money, just to, but to give visibility to what I thought was interesting around the lake for people who were traveling here, because it was the English language, well, at that time, the only English language touring magazine here. And uh, so I wrote this, I, I started writing these articles, and then I reached the point in time, as I said, I should put these together into a, into a single source. So I wrote the Lake Atitlan reference guide. Okay, then the second book on uh, on Mayan fables uh, 
came together is because I was going through a, a, a very difficult spiritual time myself. I was going through a divorce. And, uh, and uh, had mar the marriage had been very important to me, and I was uh, trying to, to grope with it. And so I said, I, I've got to sit down and, and, and find something worthwhile writing about. And then I had remembered that, uh, you know, that I had developed I had many conversations where there were these stories of fantasy and, and folklore and then that kind of thing. So I wrote the book Mayan Fables and other uh, uh, other tales of Atilan. So then uh, the uh, the natural healing book just evolved also from the I reached I reached a point in time I'd been doing a lot of leading a lot of tours uh, to places like uh, you know the, uh, the 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 two places in San Juan that have uh, naturistas. And they do sell their plants and they give brief briefings on our plants and so forth, but they don't do it in English. One of them, uh, well, no, really, neither one of them, neither one of them do in English. And so I said, well, I have to, I, I should gather this information and put it in an English format. Um, and and so each each book, you know, and that and that was Natural Healing: A Journey to the Mayan World of Atilan. But I use that as, as a, in sort of a biographical thing to talk about how I had, you know, how I decided to leave the army, to leave that life that had been pretty successful. My last job is I was working for the senior army guy in the Pentagon. I was doing world inspections for him to, to provide feedback to the Pentagon as how to modify and create new programs. But I, I was just burned out from doing it. It didn't make, it didn't seem important to me anymore. And so, you know, why I, I and, and when I started to reflect, I reflected back to the spirituality of my near-death experience and said, that's the direction I want to move in. And so that, that book talks about my journey from that, the battlefield where I was laying there and bleeding to death to where I am, you know, where I came today to, to meet healers and, uh, and uh, learn about medicinal plants and so forth. The Fables book, The Fabulous, has also been used in schools uh, around here. Uh, and it's, it's teachers have picked up on it and I've offered to help them. I have a teacher's guide for it. And uh, it's used not only in bilingual, it's the only of the books that, it, that is bilingual. Yeah. It's English and Spanish That's in the same copy. Yeah. And uh, my brother-in-law wrote, wrote the, uh, English, the Spanish translation. And uh, that, that book has been used in social studies because there's, there's messages, you know. This is, this is the, uh, this is the, the, the uh, cover, front cover of the book. And this is a story about a, a, a humble farmer uh, and, a, and a vulture or a, a, uh, who is Zopilote, as they call him in Spanish. And he's tired of working in his field all day. And he sees his bird flying around, seems to be, he has nothing to do. He's just enjoying life. So it's always, it's a story of the grass looks greener on the other side of the, the other side of the fence. He exchanges lives. He becomes a Zopilote and the Zopilote becomes him. And it's a story about what becomes of that. And, and again, the story points out that sometimes uh, you're better off pursuing who you really are instead of trying to be somebody else. And uh, you might be better off for it. So that, that, that's a collection of books and they have morals to them. And it's, it's turned out, I didn't write it for that purpose, but a, a school teacher, she was a, not a teacher, she was a director of life school, which is a bilingual school here for children. Uh, I, I asked her, I had the manuscript, and I said, read this manuscript and tell me what I should do with it. She said, I can use this in my classroom. Oh, so uh, wow. I, when it was published, uh, 
I started looking for other people who might be interested to use it in the classroom. I briefed, I've briefed the use of this book at the Global Language Institute at Rutgers University. I was invited to do that some years ago. And it's being teach, taught, used in some cases in the United States. Problem with the curricula in the United States is so well developed, it's hard to fit anything in it that's not approved at the state or the, at the federal level. Because everybody, the whole idea of American education is teach the test. Uh -huh. And if, if this doesn't teach the test, well, you know, probably it's not worth it. So, but it's been used. Uh, and so uh, those are my books. And my first, my only other book is, wait a minute, let me, uh, let me show you the, uh, I got a top maker downstairs, right? I got to go upstairs again. I'll be right back. Well, hey, do you want to close out this the recording for now? Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're signing off. That's uh, the Atitlan trilogy, Richard Morgan Shibist. I'm gonna get the full trilogy. So any of you folks in Philadelphia, you can expect that from me. But um, you can find it all on Amazon. Yeah, it's on Amazon. Okay. And uh, I, I do want to I do want to get the other book just to give you the title of it so that somebody might be interested in it. Okay. okay. Just give me a I'll second. pause it, sure. All right, so this other book. Is yeah, it? this is my latest uh, thing that's published. It's called In Quest of Meaning, A Contemporary American Odyssey, and it ties it all together. Uh, this is part one. It's called, part one is From Small Town USA to the Killing Fields of Vietnam. Covers the first part of my life, the uh, the military dimension, and the second part deals with what I've been doing since I've been here and I left the military. So uh, this is uh, it is available on uh, you know uh, on Kindle uh, or on Amazon.com. You can go to books and look at my. You better look for my name, Richard Morgan Shivis, and uh, and then you'll find it. You'll find it there with the other books. It's not an electronic book. It's not available in Kindle. I have to correct that. Okay. Well, I'll include all these titles and names in the in the description for this episode. Okay. If you want to borrow this, I'll loan it to you. But this has special meaning. It's, this is the final. Uh, this is the final draft. Okay. That you have to have it back in it. Okay. Not for resale. <laughs> well, I thank you, and I think that my friends who come to read your works, they'll thank you too. That you are truly an emissary of wonderful information and uh, and I thank you for it okay <laughs> signing off